there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm hoping the Big Ten has to modify their system for us. <laughs> Probably like getting grade 10 sandpaper rubbed on your face every day. I mean, we say it all the time, whether, you know, there's two types of turds. You're a sinker or you're a floater, but you're still a turd, right? I mean... Um, we're, we're, we are about players and players playing the plays and not necessarily the plays. Welcome to the Varsity Club Podcast. My name is Derek Peterson. Joining me this week, I have Brandon Vogel, our fearless editor at Hale Varsity. Every time I say fearless editor, he says, I don't know how fearless I am, but you are here. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I, if I'm being totally honest, I'm kind of mad at you right now, Derek. Um, I just what? feel I, I feel like I need to let you know. Why? Well, if you remember a couple weeks back, couple weeks back on Greg Smith's uh, straight up breakdown podcast when you savaged the uh, Los Angeles Clippers. Well, I listened to that as everyone should every week, of course. And when I saw the the Clippers Jazz odds come out, it was essentially uh, what's known as a no hold market which means that the odds, it doesn't happen very often, but the odds were such that like, if you found this and just bet it eternally at worst, you'll break even. And it doesn't matter what team you took. And because I have no insight on the NBA myself, having just heard you tear apart the Clippers, of course I took the jazz and it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So it's ten dollars down it, the drain. It might. It might still. Kawhi Leonard is not going to play, and Reggie Jackson is not going to be supernova. Memphis Grizzlies Reggie Jackson every single game. I don't think. But I also thought that uh, Mike Conley was going to play at some point in this series, and that has been a big deal. I was listening to somebody talk about like all of the injuries that have happened in the NBA playoffs, and they're like, "Yeah, we talk about like Kawhi's hurt." Uh, Kyrie Irving is hurt. James Harden has been hurt. All these guys have been hurt. And then we just be like, oh yeah. And and Mike Conley is not playing. And it's like, Mike Conley is really important to the Utah Jazz. And he just gets kind of glossed over. So I am sorry for leading you astray, but the Clippers irk me on a a spiritual level. Also, we recorded that uh, when they were down 2-0. And by the time it got published, they had tied the series at 2-2. You also Which, did give me give me a winning a winner on the Thunder back in May or in April. So so I guess it's my fault. I just met. We're even. We're square. Yeah, we've broken even. Yeah. Okay. Um, Brandon, we're going to talk about the college football playoff today. That was the plan, and then uh, we're recording this on a Thursday, and then uh, Wednesday happened. Uh, Nebraska coaches went across the state for the Big Red Blitz tour. And Scott Frost said something controversial yet again. Maybe not controversial, but it was viewed as controversial. And so we're going to talk about that first. Um, first of all, I want to say I, there, was a, there was a little bit made about um, sort of the attendance at those events on Wednesday. There weren't a ton of people. Scott Frost himself pointed out that there were significantly fewer people. Uh, this, this one that he was at, I think he was in Kearney when he made the comment, uh, than when he was first introduced uh, back in 2017. So they would have done it in like early 2018 or the summer of 2018 or something like that. Um, 
I, I don't know if they care about attendance. I don't know if they were bothered by how few people were there, but like I was in Columbus, there was probably 50 or so people for Amy Williams, Mario Verduzco, Eric Chenander. Didn't seem like they were bothered by it. We got to do, they got to mingle afterwards. They only talked on stage each for about seven minutes. And then it was just sort of a, a mingling with, with people. It was all outside. So I think everybody was just happy to be outside again and be talking to fans. I, it's, it's a cool event that they're doing. Um, and really the, the purpose of it is to have those, those, um, sort of intimate exchanges with fans who don't normally get to see them. So I wasn't too worried about the crowd size, but um, the comment that, that exploded uh, Christian McCaffrey commented on it. Max McCaffrey commented on it. National media was talking about it. Um, Scott Frost, depending on what you believe either directly or indirectly was talking about Luke McCaffrey transferring and then transferring again. Um, he was poo-pooing the transfer portal a little bit and talking about how kids that are going into the portal maybe are getting bad advice, which is probably not wrong. Um, perhaps one of Luke's brothers was giving advice and they felt uh, personally attacked by Frost's comments. I don't really know the whole story. I don't think anybody outside of Luke's family knows the whole story for why he transferred. Um, and he hasn't really spoken to anybody. But I'm just going to start off, Brandon, and read the full quote. Mitch Sherman is sort of the, the fire start in all this just because he put out the tweet and Twitter is terrible with all of these because you can't provide context. You get 280 characters and it took him a little bit to get back to the full quote. Here's the full quote of what Scott Frost said, which of course came out hours after the fact when everybody had already made opinions on it. Um, quote, there's no question it's going to be risky to put your name in the portal. This is Scott Frost talking. I'll tell you this, it's not supposed to happen, but the ones you really want that are in the portal, they already know where they're going before they put their name in the portal, which is tampering and illegal, but that's the way it's working. At one point, there were 1,100 kids in the portal. There's only 120-some Division I schools in the country, so there could be a lot of kids left without a seat, metaphorically, when the music stops. The other dangerous part is graduation rates go way, way down when you leave one school and go to another. We had one leave that's already left the next place he's going and headed to another place. That's the one that drew everybody's ire. Uh, and that's the biggest thing I think that's going to hurt kids. Kids don't get their college education because they're moving around trying to chase a little better situation from a football perspective. That affects their life. I don't think the pendulum will swing back, though, because every kid who leaves any program thinks they're going to go straight to Nebraska or Alabama. And the reality is most of them aren't. We've had some leave that have wound up in places that – I guess the right way to say it is Nebraska is a way better place and would have been a better place for them. And they end up in, in my opinion, lesser places, but every kid thinks they're going to get the same interest or more than they got coming out of high school. And it just isn't true. So a lot of those kids are getting bad advice, bad leadership from other places. Buckle up because this isn't the last time you're going to see all of this stuff happen. It's going to keep happening. End quote. Brandon, I have a couple of, of points that I want to make on this, but first I just want to get your thought on the overall situation. Was this just a complete overreaction, classic Twitter blowing up nothing? Um, what, did, what did you think about all of this as it was sort of unfolding on Wednesday? Yeah, I think, I think the full quote um, does, does provide a little bit more context, but I, I don't feel like he was taken – completely out of context. I mean, you mentioned Mitch Sherman was kind of the nucleus for, for this because he got it out first or, or for whatever reason. But I mean, 
that's what he said. You know, it was it was portions of it. It was excerpted, which is what you do. It's what we all do uh, when we're covering something live. So, yeah, I mean, there's you can get into the technical part of that. Um, should you do that? Should you not? Um, you can get into the technicality of, oh, maybe he wasn't even talking about Luke. Like he was talking about Luke, um, in my opinion. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And it all just seems to kind of dance around the issue of no football coaches that I have seen speak about this on the record, like the transfer portal. Why, why would they? I mean, yeah, they can atten- you know, potentially pick up some players that way. But what football coaches love and are used to is total control. And this eliminates that, at least as far as it goes to maintaining your roster to a degree. So it's completely understandable. Like, I think so much of this would have been different if the language is just a little bit different. And, you know, and that's not Frost's style. Like, he pretty much says what he wants to say. But, you know, when you say buckle up and and things like that, it, it becomes pretty clear that this irks him. And I think if you're in Christian McCaffrey's position or anyone else who kind of took exception with that part of it, like it didn't have to be that way. You could massage the language a little bit to say, you know, there's going to be other players who are in Luke's position. And it just felt a little bit like pointed at him a little bit more sharply than I thought it needed to be. And for me, that was kind of the source of, of, all of the angst about it. Um, and, you know, if Christian McCaffrey doesn't notice it and tweet about it, it probably just kind of is another coach talking about the transfer portal. Right. Um, so like you said, it's possible Frost is not talking about Luke McCaffrey because he doesn't explicitly say Luke McCaffrey. I think some people have pointed to Keyshawn Green, who transferred to Florida Atlantic uh, and is now back in the transfer portal again. Um, considering that news was three weeks ago and Luke's was – rather recent, it seems likely he's talking about Luke. Um, to your point about Christian McCaffrey, sort of, if, if and it, it's his brother, it's his right to stand up for his brother if he feels like his brother is being disrespected. I don't think Christian McCaffrey is in the wrong, just like I don't necessarily think Scott Frost is in the wrong for being upset that players want have, have wanted to leave his program. Every coach is upset when a player wants to leave their program if they've invested resources into that player and Scott Frost invested a lot of resources and a lot of public capital into Luke McCaffrey. Um, Second point, Scott Satterfield went on a radio show immediately after Luke's decision to enter the transfer portal. He was significantly more direct when talking about Luke, significantly more pointed when talking about Luke. And those comments drew little attention. We didn't get a Christian McCaffrey tweet about it to my knowledge. Um, Husker fans will question why that is. And it's not exactly fair to Scott Frost that one coach uh, can, can be a little bit more pointed and a little bit more public with his displeasure than Frost can. But Nebraska is a much bigger program and a much more relevant program on a national stage than Louisville is. So it should not come as a surprise to anyone when Scott Frost says something and it has a little bit bigger microphone than when Scott Satterfield says something. Um, Frost should know that that is the case by now. So, and, and he, he knew because he made a comment, he acknowledged at another point during that visit that media was in attendance at his Carney trip so that he, he knew he had to filter his comments a little bit more. I think his, his, I think the comment was like he, he would, uh, be a little bit more of a straight shooter with people if media wasn't there. Um, Frost has a tendency of just playing to the room, which I think gets him in trouble a little bit. 
Um, the second point, the, I agree with you. The transfer portal seems like it irks him. It seems like he's not a fan of the transfer portal. It seems like he's not a fan of how freely players are able to move between schools. Frost being a player at Stanford and then transferring to Nebraska, I don't think has any relevance in this discussion. It was a completely different situation than like Luke McCaffrey transferring from Nebraska to Louisville to Rice. The problem is that there is a situation that could arise this season, game one against Illinois, where Nebraska has four of its 22 starters on the field to open the game are transfer players that they picked up this offseason. Samori Toure, Chris Kolarovich, Marquis Stepp, Tyreek Johnson, this most recent guy that they just added. So Frost has not been shy about using the transfer portal to his benefit at Nebraska. He's added transfer portal players each year. He had Damian Dan- or Darian Daniels who came in and was a significant piece of their defense. He had Godavai Noah who came in, and though he didn't give them pr- the production that they wanted, he was a starter all year long. It cannot be this problem that is ruining college football, this boogeyman, and at the same time be used to your benefit as frequently as it does. So there, it's, it's again, with Frost, we've had this conversation before. Again, it's an optics thing. He cannot like it. That's his, I mean, it's his right. He doesn't have to like it. No coach does, like you said. Just don't be so public about it. Don't be, it, it, you just don't have to say stuff like that. And this sort of gets back to, I found it strange that media here covers guys that have left so fervently. Like, once Luke McCaffrey was at Louisville, I was like, okay, out of sight, out of mind. And then there were a lot of people that were, like, covering his decision to transfer from Louisville to Rice. And I was like, why? He's not a Nebraska player anymore. Why do we care? And this gets back to not your problem anymore. Don't comment on it. It doesn't – It doesn't. You, you don't have to care about it because nothing good is going to come from continuing to belabor, you know, a player that's no longer in your building. Just focus on the players that are in your building. It doesn't matter because it's only going to bring negative negative attention to your program. And he said that yesterday too. And you could have said, you know, just that. And it, it doesn't become a thing. Like, I'm glad you brought up Satterfield because, well, what, I mean, there's another example of a coach kind of chafing against the transfer portal. And, you know, like we've said, they all presumably hate it. They all are also like, but it's reality. So we're going to use it too. But I really felt like, with Luke's decision to transfer from Rice, like he did him pretty dirty. Like to go out there and say, like, oh, he wanted to be the starter and it wasn't going to be the case. So he left. Like that does not add up as the whole story to me. He was on campus for what, two weeks? How does he know where he's at in the pegging order? He wasn't there for spring football. There's not, they're not practicing. They can't. They're, they're doing, in, you know, individual or team workouts or whatever how do the coaches even know where Luke McCaffrey is? Like they brought him in for a reason. So to come out and just say, and like we all accepted it as gospel because it's the head coach talking of, Oh, he wanted to be the starter and that wasn't going to be the case. So he's out of here. Like immediately paints him as kind of a malcontent and, you know, kind of the classic boogeyman 
of the transfer portal, which is players who don't want to work for it or don't want to compete. And I don't know what happened at Louisville. I just know that the explanation that we've gotten to this point doesn't totally add up because all of my interactions with Luke, um, and there weren't many, but my impression of him was as a, you know, kind of the classic football player. He's from a football family. Um, and that, that may be, that may be erroneous as well, but it's just, it, it's too easy. I think to, to take those guys that leave and instead of just saying nothing to be, to let that frustration kind of linger. And it's not, it does, it's not a winning proposition for anyone. Yeah. I think coaches contribute a lot to this, this negative stereotype of players that enter the portal. And because coaches are, are so publicly annoyed by it, you get a lot of like mouthpiece media that will amplify those messages. And the transfer portal has become the players that are leaving your school don't want to work. They aren't after competition. They just want the easiest path. And then the players that enter your school through the transfer portal are instant impact players, starters, really happy about this guy. People were upset that Samori Toure's name wasn't in, involved in lists of you know best transfer additions this offseason. Because it's like, oh, well, he's going to be a starter. He's going to have a thousand yards receiving for Nebraska. He's this great player. There's, there's just a, and I mean, Twitter is not the place for nuance. It gets lost every single time. You have Twitter is not the place for debate. It's just a bunch of arguments and people with trying to accomplish one upsmanship. Um, so naturally, this isn't going to happen. But the nuance of of the situation gets lost every single time. Um, yeah, it's I just you know. There's just no need for it. There's just no need for it. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't even that big of a deal. Like, of course, Frost is annoyed by Luke McCaffrey. Luke has now left two places and both head coaches have been annoyed by his departure. So, you know, there, maybe there's something there. And Frost isn't completely wrong when he says that there are 1100 kids in the transfer portal and there are 120 division one schools. Like it's going to be a little difficult to put some of this toothpaste back in the tube because it's just so much easier to go into the transfer portal now. And with, you know, the one-time free waiver, it's so much easier to just say, I'm just going to jump ship to this other place and I can play right away and it's going to be no problem. It's going to be better over there. And it's sort of stunted a lot of kids' careers because they're not landing at places. Um, So there there are a lot of problems with the transfer portal that I think are going to have to be addressed. But coaches continuing to publicly complain about it it's not helping the situation. I don't think. Yeah, it's not. And I I do think the pendulum will swing back a little bit. It's going to take a couple of years and it's going to take kind of enough players being confronted with the, just the reality of the numbers game where they're like, well, I was at power five school X. It wasn't working out. I thought I'd moved to power five school. Y. not only did I not do that, but I couldn't even land at a G five school. You're going to have to build up that kind of those cases, unfortunately, for players to realize, like, I can't just jump in here and know I'm going to play someplace else. Um, So I I do think it'll it'll slow down. But right now it's also new still. And, you know, I mean, we're three years into the portal area era, but the waiver um, it starts July 1st, though it's grandfathered in for all the guys that transferred this year. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of extended that timeline, I'm afraid. Now, perhaps this will change by the time you guys have listened to this. Uh, but as of Thursday morning when we're recording, I have not seen many people amplifying the fact that Frost put 
uh, Nebraska and Alabama on the same playing field. I am glad that has not happened yet. I am glad Nebraska is not getting dunked on because Frost likened Nebraska's program to Alabama's program in terms of attractiveness for a recruit or a, or a potential player transfer. Um, let's keep it that way. Let's keep it that way. Let's just gloss over that point. Uh, let's talk about the college football playoffs. So it's getting expanded. Uh, Greg Smith and I talked about this on my podcast last week, but I have not gotten to talk to you about it on a podcast. We talked about it a, li- a little bit in our Slack channel. Um, but the college football playoff is potentially, it's not a thing yet, so we always got to say potentially, getting expanded to 12 teams, which would include six uh, automatic bids for the highest ranking conference champions which would guarantee at least one spot for a group of five conference champion. And then the remaining six spots would go to the highest ranked at large teams. Brandon, this is potentially going to create a situation where a school that plays in its conference championship and then a first round game, no higher than a five seed could, if they win the national championship, play 17 games in a season. Do you like this idea or is that too much? As a fan, I love it because it's more college football. Um, But as somebody who doesn't have to be out there and get tackled from August through January um, and then take a month, well, not even take a month off, go straight into workouts and then get tackled again for two months in the spring, it's pretty easy for me to say that. So I think you – it was interesting. I think it was Notre Dame's AD who who essentially said, well – those five through five through 12 teams probably aren't going to make it that far. I was like, oh, all right, we're just putting our cards out, which is super interesting because Notre Dame can't be higher than the five seed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting on, on a number of fronts. Like you're getting close at 17 to thinking, or at least I am thinking it might be too much. And the natural place to cut would be depending on conference games and it, you know, it's, it's been traditionally hard to legislate that across the board of everybody plays eight or everybody plays nine or whatever. Um, you're, you're probably going to lose the non-conference game at some point. If, if we see these teams get up there in the 16, 17 game range consistently, though, we're just talking about a handful of teams. And, and the tough part about that is, is those non-conference games, depending on, where you're at in the pecking order and what school you are. Well, almost no matter what, like the teams that have to go on the road all the time, a lot of G five teams, like they get paid for that. And it's important. And it's important for big schools to, to have those home games. So I don't know what you do. Yeah. I don't know that there are going to be too many major college football programs that are going to be on board with just lopping off a home non-conference pay for play game. Um, I mean, we saw with Nebraska this year, they want that game from a revenue standpoint, from a recruiting standpoint, they wanted that extra home game and they moved to Allen high water to, to, to get that extra home game. Um, it, this, this situation. So you pointed out like, and I think Swarbrick is right when he says that five through 12 probably doesn't really have a great path to getting to a 17th game, not even a 16th game. Um, Bill Conley using S and P plus projections, had this in his piece uh, a couple of days ago on, on ESPN. Um, the number one seed has a 71% chance of making it to the semifinals. Number two seed has a 62% chance. Three and four have high 50s. The five seed, the percentage chance of them making it to a semifinal game is 33%. And it goes on and on down from there. 10 seed, 9%. 11 seed, 13%. 12 seed, 8%. So like 
the situations in which we're talking about a team playing 17 games are going to be few and far between. Um, I still think if the players think that that's a problem, if we get into it and they're, you know, we experience a situation where a team plays 17 games and the players at the end of the season are like, Hey man, that's too much. Then, then we, you know, can kind of reconsider it. Um, one thing that I am curious about is if the fear of that causes teams, coaches, players, training staff, whatever, to adjust their approach in the regular season. We haven't seen resting, quote-unquote, load management is the popular term in the NBA. We haven't seen, to the extent that it's happening in the NBA, resting happen at the NFL level in the regular season, at least not that I've noticed. Um, and they're, But I guess they're moving to 17 games now too, so maybe that might change. Um, I'm curious if it happens with the Alabamas and the Georgias and the Floridas of the world that have that depth that can afford, or the Ohio state who just lost a five-star cornerback and it does absolutely nothing to their depth. Um, if those teams are going to say, Hey, like when we're playing, you know, central Michigan early in the season or, or Ohio or whatever Ohio state has on their schedule Fordham, we're just not going to play our starters for that game. We're just going to give those guys a game off and just see what happens. Does that diminish the regular season product? Because, college football has always had the most consequential regular season and the most dramatic regular season. And, you know, I I think with 12, with conference champions being so heavily um, it's, it's important for teams to win a conference championship. It's important for teams to have a good regular season because then they can get that first round by through the playoffs. So they have wanted to maintain the importance on the regular season. But if players start getting rested, if teams start resting players in those one through four and they say, yeah, you know what? We're not really concerned about a top four seed. We'd rather have the home, you know, first round game, that home revenue from the playoff and our guys rested because even if we have to go 17 games for some of our players, it might only be 13 or 14 because we rested them a couple of times. Do you think that's a potential problem? Um, no, I think it's just too hard to do at, at this level. Um, I, I guess if you were to like spin this forward, so say they say they decide to everyone loses one non-conference game because, and I think the only thing that would do that because we, as we mentioned, like the financial kind of picture here and with the way college football works, like they're going to protect their money. So the only thing that would probably do that is a significant uptick in injuries. So, so if you're Nebraska, that gives you two non-conference games, uh, assuming the same setup they have now. There's a really strong incentive then to find two home games, first of all, which probably means playing at least one, well, probably one every year FCS team. Mm -hmm. And further, you'd probably have a little bit of an incentive then to play the worst FCS team you could find because you want to get, in this case, Deontay Williams out of the game with four minutes left in the first quarter. Mm -hmm. And then that, you know, more than, I mean, I think that has the potential because you'd see it on a broad scale. It would just become kind of the way to, to, to schedule for a power team that diminishes the regular season, I think. Yeah, because then you're taking away the, I mean, in, in that scenario for Nebraska, Oklahoma is coming off the schedule. You're not yes. going to play those games. And one of the, the this um, playoff working group, one of the, the big things that they were super excited about was that with this 12-team model, 
potentially teams could play, you know, Ohio State could play Oregon early in the season. Alabama could schedule marquee non-conference games against other Power 5 opponents. And losing that game early in the season wouldn't necessarily have the same impact on your college football playoff chances as it would previously. But if, you know, suddenly you take a non-conference game off the schedule so you can keep conference championship games, then the teams are just going to take that that big game off the schedule. They're not going to want to play a neutral side or whatever. They're not going to want to play... Maybe teams will still want to go to Ireland or something like that. But like you said, they're probably going to play as as easy a game as they can find. Yeah, and whoever they can get to come to their place without having to make a return trip. So, yeah, like Oklahoma, Nebraska's gone. Colorado, Nebraska's probably gone. Tennessee, um, Arizona's on the schedule at some point, like 28 years from now or something, um, you know. And it, it would be tough to lose those games, but if you're if you're any team in the Big Ten, you have to feel pretty good at if the division setup is still there. Like if we win our division, we're in the hunt almost every year. Um, and if you win the conference, you're basically guaranteed to be in. So needing to impress in September becomes less of a thing with a 12-team playoff. That said, I still don't think based on what we know now that this diminishes the regular season. I know that there's kind of two camps there. I am in the camp of like, no, this like expands the number of really, really important games, like games that are important to the casual fan. Who's just like, I want to watch the biggest one. There might be one of those a week, uh, two in a good week. Now you're going to have three, four, five, I think pretty consistently. They're just not, they may not be Alabama because Alabama's going to be at number one and they can lose and they'll be fine. They'll still be in the playoff. But, you know, to use last year's schedule, like that Coastal Carolina BYU game would have been massive. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it still felt massive, mm-hmm. uh, but now put some real stakes and a real chance to go on and compete with some bigger teams. Um, like, I, I like it a lot. I, OK, I'll argue with you on that point. It didn't feel massive last year. It felt cool. So? Okay. No, it felt cool in the sense that it came together at the last minute. These were two really, really high profile teams. These were teams that hadn't lost yet. It felt cool. It did not feel like it had implications on the rest of the college football playoff because last year and up until this point, the playoff hasn't been accessible to those teams. And we saw it with coastal Carolina finishing 12th in the, in the ranking, that game didn't feel significant. Didn't feel impactful. Even, you know, it felt cool. I watched it. It was awesome. It was a great game, but it felt a little campy. Because it just it you were like okay what what impact is this going to have on the college football playoff and like to ESPN's credit they would talk to Nicole Auerbach last week about how they have to do better with their coverage so that it doesn't feel that way it doesn't feel like okay well the only thing that matters is the playoff and so we're going to view everything through the lens of does this impact the playoff um, that'll be a good thing for the sport moving forward if they sort of adjust their coverage but like like you said that game suddenly with the 12 team field is like, Oh, this is like, these two teams are fighting for a spot right here on this field right now. Um, And one of the points I made last week on the podcast with Greg was that division games now in divisions, like was it the sec East that has Alabama and Auburn and LSU? It's no, it's the sec West directionally challenged Um, in the big 10 West, those divisions that, that will regularly like cannibalize themselves those division games are now so much more important because if you have a conference championship, you are, you just have to win your division and you're there and you're one win away. 
And, and, and in a lot of cases, I haven't gone back and looked at this. I, I've meant to, I just haven't gotten time yet. Um, like how many West division, how many conference championship losers from the big 10 would have been in. Um, and it, it's, it's not as many as I think, I think, but really like get to that conference championship game. And you got a pretty good shot. If you're in a power conference to you're in the discussion for sure. Mm-hmm. Unless it's a bizarre year like 2012 when Wisconsin was seven and five, but hung 70 on Nebraska anyway. Yeah, that game that that game doesn't exist. We don't refer to uh, to those teams. Um, so the the conference championship thing is the place that a lot of people focused some consternation. Um, does does this effectively neuter conference championship games? And I'm curious to get your take on that, Bill Conley, in his piece. Um, in his simulation that he ran 16 of the 32 conference title game losers made it into the playoff and in the sec and the big 10, the runners up made it only four of seven times each. So it's not like it was happening every time. Um, but it is interesting that the conference commissioners are discussing what happens if let's go back to ACC from two years ago when seven and five Virginia played Clemson in the ACC championship game. If Virginia wins that game, the ACC is – are they shut out? Or does Clemson get in despite not winning the ACC championship game and Virginia gets left out because it was 7-5? and five? Both scenarios are bad for the conference. Virginia is, is super upset on a massive scale and will, will likely make a, a, a huge fuss about it. That's, that's a bad look. Um, it also – tells the rest of the college football public that your conference championship game does not matter because the winner had no consequence on the college football playoff. If both teams get shut out because Clemson is, is, is held to that loss, then the ACC is super upset because they're like, Hey, we had a, a 12 and one or a 13 and one or whatever it was team. That was one of the best teams in the country all season long. And because it lost one game, you're going to keep us out of the college football playoff. So all of a sudden now conference championships are on the chopping block and I could absolutely, uh, I, I understand the logic for conferences saying like, well, maybe we want to get rid of these games now. Is that a, is that a problem for you? Are you worried about that? Yeah, I would not be in favor of cutting conference championship games. Um, I think it ups the intrigue um, with those because for one, you've got two teams that, you know, as we, we talked about are, are in the hunt. Um, just by virtue of being there, minus extreme circumstances. Um, so that's good. And even if the, you know, the Virginia wins or Wisconsin in 2012, um, that team wins. Like you're, you're talking about places potentially then beyond them because they gave themselves room by just saying the top six conference champions. Like, look, the conf- a conference champion from a Power 5 school is, is not going to be left out. Um, I just, I, I don't see any way that that happens. And well, last year that gives me a little bit of pause with this is the committee. Like there's going to be ranking chicanery mm -hmm. going on, you know, like in that instance where Virginia beats Clemson, Clemson's not dropping out, but Virginia might magically end up at number 12 by virtue of beating the Tigers. Um, that part makes me a little bit uneasy, but, but what else do you do? I guess. Yeah, I mean, and if you use this format and apply it to last year, Oregon would have been left out. The Pac-12 would have been left out. It would have been two uh, group of five schools 
Cincinnati and, and Coastal Carolina get again because of it. Um, so, you know, like the, the question that I posed to Greg was suddenly will, yeah, I mean, <laughs> will, will Coastal Carolina end up 13th in the ranking in that situation or lower than Oregon or whatever? Suddenly the rankings change because the committee's like, hey, we don't need to do this. So, like, your point about if, if we're going to go down this road, we also need to discuss how the committee views and evaluates these teams. Yeah, it would be really great to have a little bit firmer. <laughs> there's there's got to be a better system. Um, I, I know people like you and I who are soccer fans always like apply soccer to everything we don't like about American sports. But as, as I thought about it, like I think one of the real beauties of that sport is it's so strictly prescribed. Like if you win a match, a league match, you get three points. If you draw, you get one. If you lose, you get zero. Like everybody knows. And, and it doesn't cover all these things. Like there are instances where, oh, an all-time great team may have just lost the wrong match or only gotten a point and they're out. But because everyone's agreed to the rules beforehand, it's just how it works. It's how it is. And college football has never been that. Yeah, I would probably miss a little bit of the wacky charm of like, oh my God, the sport just doesn't make any sense. But I would also really enjoy just teams knowing what they need to do going in instead of it being effectively a judged sport. I mean, it's like gymnastics, but worse because gymnastics and figure skating and these things where you have judges who award points, like so much of that is prescribed. Like a gymnast knows going in, like the maximum score I can get from this routine is X number of points. We don't have that for college football. And I don't think we ever will. One of the ways that conference title games will remain on the schedule and will, will remain untouched is, and Pete Thamel for Yahoo Sports reported this this week, uh, a restructuring of the division setup or just completely doing away with divisions altogether and just saying the two best teams at the end of the season or the, the two teams with the best conference record at the end of the season will play for the conference championship game. Do you like the idea of scrapping divisions uh, Bill Conley has has talked, and a lot of other people have talked about. I keep referencing Bill Conley. He's just he's he's our college football czar. If we needed a college football czar, it would be Bill Conley. Um, a lot of people have referenced pods as as a replacement of divisions. Um, are, do you want to keep the current division structure? Do you think it is outdated? Do you think it is dumb? How do you feel about divisions in in this this new era with the college football playoff? Yeah, I've been interested in some of those those alternate ideas. I think um, a, a pod type of setup could work pretty well where you're like, we play these three teams every year. We know that. And then you just kind of fill out the rest of your conference schedule w- with a rotation that's pretty typical now for, for cross-division games. I, I actually think, though, that this pot- potentially coming playoff change is the wrong impetus to get rid of divisions because you mentioned it, you know, in your conversation with Greg about how these division games become bigger, Mm -hmm. winning your division becomes much bigger. Um, If, if we assume that if you're a power five team and you win your division, you're not sitting at 24th in the playoff rankings at worst, you're probably like 16th with a chance to play in. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like, I look at it as the division winning your division matters more now than it ever has in a 12 team playoff era. So, so why get rid of them now other than it would offer you some, some scheduling flexibility. Yeah. I think with anytime you make a big change like this, it's going to have 
everybody talks about the word unintended consequences. It's going to have a lot of branch timelines that happen. Things been watching too much Loki things that you aren't expecting to happen that happen. And then you have to address them later on. Um, it happened with the uh, eligibility pause, the NCAA. It happened with the recruiting deadline. It happened with the FCS level, JUCO level, kicking football to the, to the, to the spring. Anytime you have a big decision like this, it's going to cause a bunch of different things that you didn't expect to have to discuss. You're going to have to discuss them. I wonder if they're going to try to change too much and try to overthink this too much and change too much before we even figure out what exactly this is going to affect. I think the biggest thing that we should try to do right now as this changes, I think that the biggest thing should be let's across the board, let's get a uniform schedule structure in place. If we need to address divisions, we'll address divisions later. If we need to address the conference championship or the length of the season, we'll address that later. But I think right now this is the perfect opportunity to address just so that you can help make it a little bit easier on the college football playoff selection committee. Let's just, let's just get a structure that everybody has agreed to for scheduling set number of, of conference games, set number of non-conference games and go from there. Yeah. Yeah. As I have the Euro championships on in the background here, um, what if we just do that by each conference, (laughs) have a mini conference championship where you just divide the big 10 into pods and you could help reduce some teams games um, where like you take the top two winners from pod one and pod two, and they play in a little 14 playoff and you determine conference winner. So Let's see, that's three, five, six, seven games, potentially. Um, I don't know. But, I mean, we should probably just get the 12-team playoff first and, and figure it out from there before we get too crazy with our, our alternate ideas. Yeah. Do you like the idea that the college football playoff is now more accessible to the group of five? This is a question I did not prepare you for. It's a little off topic. But just in general, do you like the idea – that the group of five schools are now have more access to the playoff, even though they're probably not going to win it. Yeah, I love it. Um, assuming it actually transpires like it could. Um, and it's not just, well, we'll let BC, we'll let Boise state in when they're good. And we'll let UCF in when they're good. Like um, maybe it's apparent from, from our conversation to this point, but I am very much a like, tip to tail fan of college football. And, and you are correct when, when talking about coastal Carolina, BYU, I used massive, which wasn't the right word. Um, it was cool. And a lot of the talk around that was how that game came together. And that's because like, yeah, it's cool that they're playing and it's cool that it's a great game. I saw that it was on Twitter. So I flipped over, you know, which is probably a lot of people, uh, cause you didn't have those built in stakes. This helps with that, um, in name, I want to see it in practice. Like there's, I understand why Texas A&M is fifth in the playoff rankings at the end of last year. They're in tough division. They were a good team. They played really well. Um, But that doesn't mean that just because the divide of there's only so much a UCF or Boise state can prove. Like I, I I really hate that. I, I chafe against that the way football coaches chafe against transfer portal. I'm like, 
Let's find out. Like, they play good football. They have some good players. They don't have all the good players, like Alabama or Ohio State or Clemson, but that's part of the fun of it. Like, they can get in there and, like, let's try it. Let's see it. Instead of just being like, you know, yeah, you played a G5 schedule. You played in a G5 conference. Like, there's only so good you can be. I I really am bothered by that. Yeah, same. And I think you and I have had this conversation since UCF went unbeaten in 2017. Like, you can only play the games that are on your schedule. And if you win all your games that are on your schedule, then you deserve to have a shot. Um, so, and, and like too, I made this point on my column, like college football is the only, really the only American sport that I can think of that is so concerned with let's give the title at the end of the season to the best team and not just the team that won. Like the NBA playoffs, the best team doesn't always win. The NFL playoffs, the best team doesn't always win. College basketball, the best team doesn't always win. At, in most college sports, the best team doesn't always win the championship at the end of the season. We just start with the FCS playoffs. Um, and college football has always been, at the FBS level, at the tippy top, has always been so much more concerned with, let's make sure that the best team, the most talented team, the most deserving team is winning the title. Let's structure everything so that we can make sure that that happens. And sometimes, like, the fun of sports is seeing, you know, Golden State 73 win Warriors below a 3 1 lead in the finals to LeBron James. Sometimes that's just the fun of sports. And so if we get more of that in college football, I'll be happy. If we get Appalachian State upsetting Michigan and then having a Cinderella run to the college football playoff and winning a couple games, that's good for the sport. Yeah, it is. I mean, college football has, has always been a sport with the way that it does things. Of It's really about which is the team that you can nitpick the least, which is kind of the backdoor to uh, most deserving. Unfortunately, teams like App State, Coast Carolina, et cetera, one of the nitpicks is just built in of like, uh, you don't play in the SEC. So sorry. So if this helps get rid of that, I'll be happy. Yeah. Brandon, we got an app state reference in for you to, to make your day better. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I'll let you get on, get on with your day. It was nice to have you on. Thanks a lot for having me. We will be back next week with another podcast. In the meantime, keep reading LVRC.com. Subscribe to all of the podcast offerings. We are a proud part of the herd at media network. Greg Smith has won the brand reference, the straight up breakdown podcast. Aaron Sorensen has one with Sasha Durkin. You mind your own podcast. Jacob Padilla and Damon Benning have a podcast. They also do a live show for it, the Nebraska Preps postgame show. And then Brandon has a podcast as well, which is not in season right now, but you can still subscribe to it and should subscribe to it. Leave it a rating. It's the IAD preview podcast. So lots of ways that you can find Hale Varsity content. The yearbook is also coming, so make sure you're looking out for that. We will be back next week. Thanks, guys. Hood at Media Production.